And I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, to the 12th chapter there, or your attention to the screens. We have been talking over the last number of weeks about spiritual disciplines and spiritual disciplines from the personal perspective of how do we get our life into a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we've talked about a number of those uh, spiritual disciplines, but this morning I want to take those personal journeys into the spiritual discipline and sort of invite them to come together into community, into faith community, because the truth is that spiritual formation and spiritual growth happens best in community. And knowing, understanding, discerning God's will also happens best in community. So we're in 1 Corinthians. We're in the 12th chapter. Just reading for us this morning verses 21 through 26. And this is what Paul writes. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special attention. But God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. And the Corinth church was a place of controlled chaos. To use an Old Testament phrase from the book of Judges, Corinth was the place where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We have two letters to the church at Corinth in our scripture. Many scholars believe there were at least four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, underscoring for us the fact that there were some significant issues there. But Paul gives us an overview of what the church of Corinth's membership looked like. And he says it includes Jewish merchants whose reputation was far less than sterling. It included gypsies. It included Greeks and prostitutes and pagan idolaters. Sounds like a really interesting church, doesn't it? Well, it was. The church continually battered schism, battled schism. It dealt with sexual sins, particularly the sin of incest. It regularly confronted issues like greed and pride and envy and snobbishness and deceit. And they also turned the Lord's Supper into a drinking party. The church is, as Eugene Peterson observes, equal parts mystery and mess. It has always been that way, and it seems rather likely that it will continue that way. But the Corinthian church seems like it makes every other church's issue 
issues pale by comparison. The church in Corinth, in my estimation, would be every pastor's nightmare. But as the body representing Jesus Christ, the church should not be the center of sin. It should not be known for its embattled schisms. It should not be a nightmare for members or for their pastors and leaders. It should not be so messy or look so much like the rest of the world. As the body of Christ, it ought to look increasingly like Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, the book most scholars think predates almost all of the other New Testament books, Paul struggles with a basic question. He says, what is this thing called church? What is the church is an important question to Paul. And I think likewise, it ought to be an important question for us. And Paul isn't looking at it as an opportunity for some philosophical or theological discussion. Paul is looking at it from a very practical angle. This letter, Paul writes, is a window, if you will, into Paul's frustration with the church. Perhaps in general, but in this case, most specifically with the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul begins by exploring the nature of the church with the metaphor of a field. He says, I come and plant. Perhaps somebody else comes and waters. Maybe somebody else comes and harvests. It grows. Paul then goes on to suggest that maybe the church is like a building. He's the one that gets to lay the foundation. Other people come in, they build additional layers, and so on and so forth. Then Paul talks about the church being a temple within us. He suggests that the church is actually us. We are the church, and Christ has come to take up residence in his church in each one of us. By chapter 12, after now exploring several metaphors, Paul finally seems to land on one that he really likes. And he spends an entire chapter going into it and exploring all of the parallels that go with it. This is a metaphor he uses over a dozen times. It's the metaphor of the body. I wondered this week, and perhaps you've done this in the past as well, what metaphors Paul might use if he were writing this to a church here today in the 21st century? What metaphors might he choose? Well, maybe he might continue the same metaphor, the metaphor of the body. Maybe he would take it to the next level because the truth is our bodies are absolutely incredible. While we're sitting here quietly this morning, your heart will beat at least 4,320 times in this hour. You will breathe about 968 times. Your stomach will continue to try and discern what you sent down for breakfast. Your liver and your intestines will be at work separately to dispense the good stuff that you ate from the bacon. Your brain cells 290,000 of them that are connected are putting together your sights and your hearing and trying to make some sense of the preaching that's going on up in front. 
All of these systems are all working together simultaneously as a unit, as one unit. And every part is significant and important because every part of your body is fully dependent on every other part. And if even one part fails, death can ensue. And then Paul goes on to say, that's God's vision for his church. Even if one part fails, hmm, there is an organization that attracts millions of people every single week that has no denominational headquarters and no paid staff. It's called AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Politicians and businessmen mix freely with unemployed dropouts and kids with needle marks. Hi. I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bob. Welcome. The sharing time is textbook, small group dynamics, marked by compassionate listening, warm responses, understanding, and hugs. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of laughing. There is no reason not to be honest and transparent. There is every reason to be loved and to love. People commit to be there for each other even at four o'clock in the morning. And not only do they commit it, they are there. Those farther along on the journey assist those who are just taking the initial steps. They provide salvation for each other in the most literal sense. Today, Paul might use AA as an illustration of what God intended his church to be. People not there only to be focused on themselves, but to be focused on others. Hmm. Others suggest Paul might have used the Secretary of State's office. If I'm honest, most of my friends, they look a lot like me. Similar age, similar education, similar values, similar tastes in music and books and sports and cars and faith. But have you ever been... Have you been to the Secretary of State's office lately to renew your driver's license? You go in and you stand in line. They give you a number and you get to sit down. Sitting down, you observe that so many people are, are shaped differently than you are. They're taller or shorter or wider or thinner. So many are older. Okay, not so many in my case, but some are younger. So many in cowboy boots. So many with lots of hair. So many who haven't yet discovered the benefits of deodorant. And I admit, my reaction betrays my isolation. But if we're all honest, we all gravitate toward people who are like us until, sadly, we're only with people that are just like us. Renewing our driver's license forces us outside of our small circle and we realize there is a great big world out there of people that are not at all like us. And our failure to realize that is not good news for anyone. Today, Paul might suggest that, that the church ought to look a lot like the Secretary of State's office, you know, a, a center of diversity. Hmm. Others suggest Paul should use the emergent care center motif. 
Medical care is increasingly available in our neighborhoods, in an emergency room, if you will, not associated with a hospital. It's good for finger stitching and twisted ankles and broken arms and bee stings and a host of other things. Some might say like a med station, the church should be open long hours. It should be convenient to find, willing to meet needs of those who drop in because because life happens and people need healing. Perhaps it's a physically or mentally challenged child. Maybe it's a messy affair or a divorce. Maybe it's terminal cancer or depression or loneliness or unemployment or loss. Where can we take our emotional scrapes and bruises, our marriage and our parenting crises, our spiritual fractures and our our gaping psychic wounds? We can go to church. Or can we? Is the door really open? It is no coincidence that some of the largest hospitals in our world carry the words like Baptist and Presbyterian or Methodist or Saint in their name. It is no coincidence that the modern hospice movement was founded by Dr. Dame Cicely Saunders, a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. Many hospices, even today, still have a deep religious affiliation. Is the church a welcoming center? Is the church a place where we can bring our pain? After all, it was founded by one whose body was painfully broken for us. The church ought to be a place that provides healing because after all, our head, the one who rose from the dead to provide the ultimate healing was known while he was here as the healer. God is calling us to grow spiritually and to discern his will and to do it together. The metaphor that I like the best and the metaphor I'd like to focus our attention on for a few moments this morning is the metaphor of the family. I'd like it not only because it's in the Bible as a biblical metaphor, but also because it's still very relevant today and because I think most people can identify with it. It's not a perfect metaphor. There are no perfect families In fact, because I think of some of the issues surrounding the family today, this metaphor even becomes more helpful than what it may have been in the New Testament. If you were to open your Bible and begin at the very beginning in Genesis, it will not take you very long before you realize that you are reading the history of families. It begins with Adam and Eve's family. One good son... One not-so-good son. Mom and dad had both messed up big time. We keep reading and we encounter Abraham's family. Abraham had a mistress on the side and an illegitimate son. Then comes the story of Isaac. His youngest son, Jacob, conned him out of an inheritance. And then everything seems to flow out of Jacob's family. And the Old Testament records for us the history of the children of Israel, which was Jacob's new name. When history books 
record the rise and fall of civilizations. Our news reports recall the rise and fall of institutions. The Bible chronicles the rise and fall of families. And there's a reason, I think, for that. You see, institutions are sustained by status and rank. In the military, a captain oversees a lieutenant. Grades define levels of achievement in our schools. In business, it is the salaries and the perks that define success. And success out there is always related to performance and education and achievement and wealth and athleticism and seniority. The family works on an entirely different paradigm. The family has traditionally shared the same father or, in some cases, the same mother. The father has traditionally given the family its name and its identity. Some years ago when I was in Israel, I walked for a time behind an Orthodox father with his three young children. His daughter, perhaps three or four, fell behind and called out, Abba! He recognized the voice. He stopped. Only then did he realize that she had actually fallen behind. She called out again, Abba. He reached out his hand and she took it. He held her hand until they got to the corner. Then she stepped off the curb. He pulled her back. When the signal changed, he led them all together across the street. In the middle of the street, he reached down and picked her up in his arms. Abba, as a church, we acknowledge the same Abba, same Father. We acknowledge that he loves us all together in Jesus. We acknowledge that he cares for us through his spirits. And we have talked about the need for us to deepen our relationship with him. But understand, our status in God's family is that we are all loved completely continuously and unconditionally. Like a child earns, and I would put that in parenthetic quotes, like a child receives status simply by being born or adopted into the family. We earn, we receive our status, not because of something we've done, not because of who we are, but simply because because God loved us and God was willing to send his one and only son to die for us. That's our status. And that's how we become part of his family. An undeserving and underachieving child, and let's be honest, we all fit that description, is not kicked out of a family. In fact, a sick or challenged or wayward child is given more help and more attention as in our family, so in God's family. No one has more status than another. We're all family. We're all there because of God's grace. Scripture calls us to overlook meaningless distinctions. Paul says, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male nor female. There is no slave or free old or young, insider or outsider, baptized or professing. Such distinctions melt under the sun's grace. And we find ourselves where we are as family, together. 
Families are built on love and acceptance. John Updike writes, families teach us how to how love exists in a realm beyond liking and disliking, coexisting with indifference, rivalry, and even antipathy. Sadly, churches are increasingly run like businesses rather than like family. Love and grace have given way to good order. Status is given to those who are productive and successful. Some are on the inside and honored. Some are pushed to the outside and ignored. The church is a mess, and God is grieved. People today transfer in and out of faith communities because they think it's all about them. When the heat goes up, people bail. We mistakenly believe that we have no responsibility to our other brothers and sisters in Christ. We mistakenly believe that we are not being held to any accountability at all. We increasingly make decisions based on efficiency and experience and finances and our opinions and what has proved to be successful in other church bodies and markets. We want things comfortable. We like them problem-free. And we have very little commitment to the family. So it's no wonder that the church is a mess in our world. Imagine for me, for just a moment, the body of Christ as a family gathered around the dinner table. Hopefully that's not too difficult for us to imagine because in my estimation, that is a great picture of the family of God. So here we have this extended family and it contains some successful individuals and some average ones, and some who have yet failed to meet their potential. Corporate Vice President Aunt Mary sits next to Uncle Charles, who has never been able to keep a job for more than a year. Five-year-old Jennifer, who can't stop, can't stop talking, is sitting next to Great Grandpa, who left his hearing aids at home by mistake, or so he said. Jane, a small business owner, and card-carrying Republican is sitting next to her brother-in-law, a Democrat who serves on the city commission. Around this table, some are clever, some are foolish, some unsightly, some attractive, some healthy, some unwell, some vaccinated, some anti-vaxxers, some old, some still learning to walk, some conservative, some progressive, some would be defined as successful. Some never seem to figure out what life was really all about. But it's okay. Because they're family. You're not only included. You're loved. Not for who you are. Not for what you've done. Not for what you failed to do. But just because you are. Robert Frost says, the family is the place where, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. He's right. That's what the church is all about as well. God designed our nuclear families to be a training ground to prepare us and to train us how we ought to relate to others in his family and ultimately to those in his world. So he would remind us 
that the family is the one institution you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose it for yourself and you don't get to choose it for others. We're either born into it or you're adopted into it. It's a gift. In the family, we find people like us and people we like and people who are simply unlikable. People who are strange and people just like us. But it doesn't change the fact that we're still all family. Someone once wrote, to dwell in love with saints above, <laughs> why, that'll be glory. To dwell below with saints I know, eh, that's a different story. Henry Nouwen defined church community as the place where the person you least want to live with always lives, end quote. Families work best, not when we focus on the differences, but when we embrace them. When they understand diversity doesn't separate them, but enriches them. When they intentionally build one another up instead of tearing one another down. Satan loves nothing other than when church members tear other believers down. Families are the only institution that intentionally strives to build up the weakest and the smallest and the youngest members and to build them into strong and wise and mature members. John Wesley's mother once, was once asked, which one of your children do you love the most? And she responded, which one of my children do I love the most? I love the sick one until he's well. The one who's away from home until he's back. See, those principles not only apply to our families, they, they apply to our, rather, to his family, to his church as well. To be able to discern God's will together, you and I will need to learn together and live together and love together and listen together so we can serve and glorify God together. There's a legend called the rabbi's gift. It's the story of a dying monastery. You see, at one time, this Christian monastery was a thriving community. It was filled with people who were serving the Lord in a variety of ways, but, but over the years, things had slowed down until finally there were just five brothers living there, and they were all getting older. And they all wondered what their future might hold. The monastery stood on the edge of the city, and sometimes a wise Jewish rabbi would walk by the monastery as he meditated and since the rabbi and the abbot of the monastery were good friends, sometimes the abbot would join him and they would walk together. And many times the abbot would talk about how things were going at the monastery. Many times he would confess that there was this concern, this weight on their shoulders about how long the monastery would even be able to keep going. And many times he asked the rabbi if he had a word of wisdom to offer and the rabbi would always shake his head. I have no wisdom for you. 
I'm sorry. They would read the scriptures together. They would weep together for a while. And then they would each return to their home. And this went on for years. One day when they met, the rabbi said, I have a word for you today. It's not a word of advice. I'm not even sure it has anything to do with the troubles at the monastery, but I believe it is a word from God for you. The rabbi said, the word I heard is, the Messiah is one of you. The Messiah is one of you. They both shook their head and admitted it was a, it was a very strange word. Then they went back to their homes. At the monastery, the other brothers asked, so what did you talk about today? And the abbot said, well, you know, it was very interesting. The rabbi said that he had a word of God for us, and his word was, the Messiah is one of you. They shrugged their shoulders. They chuckled a little bit, and no one mentioned it again. But in the months that followed, Something changed in that monastery. Something subtle. Something warm and fresh and new. Each one of the brothers continued to think about these rabbis' words and began to look at the others a little bit more closely. And they began to see ways in which that statement might be true about someone else. Maybe, maybe the abbot was indeed Messiah. Or maybe it was Brother Philip or Brother Thomas or Brother Alfred. Certainly each of them contained the graces that would be characteristic of Messiah's life. And funny thing, they started to treat one another more kindly. They became more respectful of each other. They began to seek one another out for, for wisdom and, and fellowship and, and even for play. And something began to happen in that community. Love began to grow. And because the monastery was on the edge of the city, people often walked by. And it seemed like more and more people were walking by. And more and more people who were walking by stopped to pause and talk to the brothers. And one day, someone asked if they could actually come and stay with the brothers so that they could learn from them what this love was that they were sharing and be able to step into that deep spirituality that they began to feel when they were there and walking by. And so the monastery became a place for the hurting, a family for the lonely, a place of support for those who were struggling with life. One day the decision was made not to call it a monastery at all, they decided to call it a community, Messiah's community, because they were increasingly convinced that the Messiah was living there among them. And over the gates of each entrance, they wrote a single line, Messiah welcomes you. Maybe that's what happened in Corinth. Paul certainly believed it could have it certainly should have. I mean, they were people of God. They were walking in the footsteps of Jesus, claiming him as Messiah. But the history of the Corinthian church 
probably really isn't the most important issue for us who are here this morning. Probably more important are some of these questions for us to ponder and perhaps to discuss and even to pray about together. Questions like, are we a community of Christ here at Georgetown, embracing those who come here, from those yet unable to walk to those using a walker? Are we a community of Christ in the midst of living our messy and mysterious lives who are willing to love unconditionally those who live in this community with us? And are we Messiah's community? Are we convinced he is living here among us? Does our neighborhood know us by our love? Let's think about that. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we simply say thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ in adopting us as brothers and sisters of Jesus as your sons and daughters in making us one family. And now, Father, we just ask that you would give us the grace and the strength and the wisdom to be the family that you've called us to be. In Christ, we pray. Amen.